Hello and welcome to a new episode of The Lippickers. I'm excited to be in conversation with Dipanjana Pal, who, who is, is here. excited to be in conversation with Supriya Nayar. And today we're here to talk to you about romance, romance, romance. But I don't know what we're going to say because I kind of haven't been feeling the whole romance novel thing for quite a while. I can guess this because you just did horror echoes for romance, which is curious, but you know, I think romance can be a little horrifying from time to time as well. But you and I are both old aficionados, converseurs of romance if I say so myself. So much so that we know that romance and horror are deeply interlinked. Are they really? Yes, it's true, they are. The, I mean a lot of the tropes of romance if they're done badly there's nothing scarier than those there's no doubt about it yeah i mean and let's not forget that real life romance itself romance intimacy sex i mean all of these things are closely connected with the things that we most deeply fear or so i'm told which is why romance is one of the most popular genres and has been for decades hasn't it i think it's also one of the most resilient genres because um Romance doesn't get a lot of respect, right? It's like most commercial genres, it's looked down upon, it's considered shoddy writing, and it's just considered commercial as though that's a dirty thing. But when you look at how the romance genre has actually evolved, especially I would say in the last half century or so, you see that this genre has been taking risks, it's been t- making changes, it's it's actually done all the things that commercial fiction is not supposed to do it has become progressively progressive and without having a dent in its sales romance continues to be in the us a billion dollar industry we don't have numbers for india because we just don't chart these things it is still among the most popular genres irrespective of which reading culture you look at and in the foreign english romance writing world foreign to india that is i think it's been really interesting to see how much of social attitudes have been folded into this writing one of the biggest things with romances in the contemporary era modern romances basically they're all working women so many of them have been secretaries that you know looked down upon profession that got no respect in real life but glorified into the position of a heroine a heroine without whom the hero falls apart they've also been doctors they've also been lawyers they've been professions that are not open to women so it's reimagining the world we've seen them make far more progressive heroes heroes who actually put women at the center of their worlds who hear a woman out who give her benefit of doubt and support her when the rest of the world is against her you know it's wildly fantastical but it's progressively fantastical in the recent times of course the funny thing is that people who don't read romance novels tend to dismiss them as regressive as formulaic as stories that tend to box women in and limit their choices funny you should say that find me the literature that liberates women's choices you know for decades and decades women have been buying and reading work by other women that is premised on the fantasy that as a friend of mine put it recently very well i think that they don't have to do all the work in a relationship crazy idea right yeah and fundamentally i think if you don't get that that 
is perhaps one of the most liberating ideas in the history of humanity. You need to re-examine some of what you know and think about history and humanity. Having said which, I do, because I'm currently off romances, I can sympathize with people who find them boring, who find them limited, who find that their view of women's happiness goes only so far and no further, all of which I think is true. Uh, and yet, I think that people who believe that romance novels are only about that really tend to base their opinions on... Uh, not having read one. Not having, or not having, not having read many, perhaps, because this is also a very diverse genre, among other things. I think you're absolutely right. It is formulaic. There are loads of formulas. There are loads of cliches. No one who's read romances as fondly uh, as for instance, I have, but or as you have in the past, <laughs> will deny that there are cliches. Of course, there are cliches. But there are also cliches in action movies, for example. There are cliches in detective fiction. This assumption that the cliche makes the romance stupid is rooted in sexism, to begin with. Mm -hmm. It's also worth keeping in mind that while tropes and cliches in stuff like detective fiction and crime fiction and action series like spy thrillers these have actually not evolved. They're the same cliches, like the James Bond cliches from the 60s continue to be applicable today. Yeah, if anything, the intelligence thriller has gone back in time. I would much rather read John le Carre on the Cold War than like your random American spy thriller guy on international intelligence post-2001. I don't want to know, you creep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, look, romance would be a winner for me in like all the genres in literature for no other reason than the fact that successful romance novels make women writers rich. And I think having that capital is pretty important. But I also, I, I also see that perhaps the audience for romance may be changing over time as different sorts of romances are being written, as you've noted yourself. We're recording this just a few months after Bridgerton on Netflix seems to have swept... I'm going to stab myself in large the parts of the globe. You're I watched about 20 minutes of it. Tell me you're not celebrating Bridgerton. Well, Our I friendship about, is at stake here. I watched about 20 minutes of it and I couldn't really get into it. And I thought that maybe that was just me generally not being in the mood for it. I have read Julia Quinn's novels. Right. Uh, or and did I you had like them? Read, I read them too long ago to remember, but, but I do remember that this was at a time when, you know, you, the fun of reading a good romance novel is that you can finish one in a day, right? Or less. Absolutely. And I do remember being able to absolutely race through them, So, which I think bears testimony to the fact that I enjoyed them. I can't really remember anything much about them. I don't think Julia Quinn is the best example there is of... Regency romance, which is a very, very popular genre. So popular, in fact, that when Dipanjana said contemporary romance, quote unquote, earlier in the episode, she was actually referring to a term used within the industry to distinguish romances set in the present day from romances that are set in history, because that is how much women love them. And that is how often they are written. It's also uh, become a bit of a code word for, for glorifying old-fashioned ideas. That's been the short code for historical romances, mm. which is, again, very misinformed. Because if anything, these historical romances, again, they foreground the woman at a time when she was not foregrounded. Someone like Georgette Hare, who I think was, you know, she was a huge favorite 
for women of my mother's generation, your mother's generation. Um, and who continues to be read. And continues and to be read. And who I think read. was, you know, I'm not, like, she's not one of my favorites. But I think that it says a lot that that the world of English literature celebrates a writer like P.G. Woodhouse for reinventing language and reinventing a whole genre of writing and doesn't recognize that Georgette Hare did pretty much the same thing. And was insanely prolific. Like, for a good 20-odd years, every year she came out with one romance and one detective novel. Every single year, two novels. Can you imagine that? Yeah, and they were actually meaty, unlike, yeah, the, no- were- unlike the novels of Barbara Cartland, who did write a novel every fortnight, but which I think I've never read a Barbara Cartland, but which I've heard was like basically more or less the same novel over and over again. Yeah, Barbara Cartland wrote some 700 novels by her publisher's estimation. Mm. And I mean, once again, it's not like they're particularly good. But she was prolific. And in many ways, I think she was having fun in a way with history that a lot of writers at that point of time were not having with the romance genre. Mm. But it's also interesting when I think of Georgette Hare, like Georgette Hare's, to some extent, Barbara Cartland as well. If you're lucky, there's a kiss, you know, like if you're lucky, Mm. the bulk of the romance is conversation and moments, like everyday moments are kind of charged with a kind of erotic passion. Oh, he looked at me. His knuckles brushed my elbow or some such, I don't know, erogenous zone, wannabe erogenous zone, Mm. trying to be as erotically charged as possible. But it worked. Here's the thing, right? The historical romance, you're a fan of historical romances, right? Yes, I have been a fan of historical romances. And I like historical novels in general, which is not a popular opinion among highbrow literature critics. Historical novels are looked down on because they're considered like kind of pastiche. And you know, oh, they're like the easy way out. You don't want to write about like real psychological drama. So you just want to write about like fluff and settings. And people have actually said this even about Uh, writers like Hilary Mantel, who is, I think, whatever you, you know, whether you like her books or not, is operating at the absolute pinnacle of the novelist's art. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's no joke for a good historical romance writer to actually invent that world anew, as Georgette Hare did, and as many after her have done, and then within that to innovate so that you can foreground women's freedom and women's choice and emotion, you know, from an era when emotions were less written about mm. than they are now. Yeah, and the emotions were not looked highly upon at that point But emotions time, right? were not articulated in the language that they are now, if you want to get technical about it. Never. <laughs> um, so I've always been more of a contemporary romance kind of girl. Mm. Um, so I've had a bit of a reading slump and I came out of it. I wouldn't say I'm out of it, but the first book that I have read in months was a romance. It was not a historical romance, but because it was a romance, if you had to recommend a historical, a set of historical romances to me, whose books should I be looking at? You know, I always thought that the work of Loretta Chase Mm. uh, was far superior to that of Julia Quinn. So if I had to pick one girl to get that Netflix cash, I would have picked Loretta Chase who wrote a book called Lord of Scoundrels, which I think is like super famous and is legendary in like romance reading and writing circles. Having said which, you know, hat tip to the observation you made earlier, which is that women are writing more progressive romances all the time. And this is as true of Regency romance, which is like the most hidebound sort of genre within a genre (laughs) you can imagine. Yeah. Where, you know, Loretta Chase is still writing about like dukes and virgins and stuff like that. And there are more recent 
romances that are actually about people who lived in Regency England who weren't dukes and who weren't like beautiful virgin heiresses or whatever. Surely no such thing existed. <laughs> Everyone yes. was a duke who, or a duchess. I mean, you know, what what about what about the butler and the chambermaid who want to have like a sweeping romance? What about the immigrant so from So someone's a writing colony? this stuff? Yeah, uh-huh. they are. And perhaps we can include some of those recommendations in the show notes. Right. Uh, I have enjoyed contemporary romance in my time as well, though. Had to appear to Susan Elizabeth Phillips, the writer I want most to be like. Why so? She just, I mean, she's just like, she's just vibes. You know, she writes these like really fun romance novels and she like whips them out at a tremendous pace that are full of... They're full of like oozing, comic, dramatic, sexy moments. And they're very rooted in a certain kind of middle American ethos. But Mm. I don't find that alien. And I don't find that disquieting, even though this may not in fact be the case for people who don't live in middle America or, or perhaps who do live in middle America and want to get out of there. She is truly a talent. So one of the things that I love about modern romances, contemporary romances, which is, I think, what has kept me a fan of this genre is, like I was saying earlier, how much it's been changing and for the better. Mm. So, for example, I don't think, like, okay, so my family, like your family, is generations of women loving romances. Mm -hmm. Your mom read romances religiously. Indeed. You did in your time. My mother bequeathed her Mills and Boone collection to me at mm. uh, when I was of a certain age. Mm-hmm. I will possibly be bequeathing reading lists to friends' daughters because mm. I'm not parting with my books. Thank you. Mm. You want anyway. them to be buried with you in your pyramid? Uh, yeah. No, once I'm dead, you can take them. While I'm alive, my paws stay on these books. The point is that in our parents' generation, in our mother's generations, we could not have imagined a romance between two men being on the bestseller list. And yet it is. Like there are Mm. gay romances like Red, White and Royal Blue that was on the bestsellers list. Mm -hmm. This is a regular thing. Like gay romances, women read them, as do men, I'm sure. But they're they're popular. They are commercial. Mm. Um, And they're written respectfully and not like... Yeah, no, they're not offensive at all. Yeah. The book that uh, broke my reading slump is a book called The Roommate, Mm. in which the hero is a porn star. And there is no shame to him being a porn star. Mm. He is happy with the work that he does. He wants more dignity for his industry. And the heroine helps him get it. I mean... Do they shut down Pornhub together? No, but they come up with an alternative version of things. Bless the free market. It's super fun. It's also very sexy for good reason. And in many ways, it's sort of keeping... What I found really fun was that it's keeping certain tropes in place that the man will be more experienced than the woman. Kind of going to happen if you're going to date a porn star. Mm -hmm. Um, It also has the central conflict of one of the people in the romantic relationship needing rescuing, except here it's the guy who needs rescuing. So there are familiar tropes, but she plays around with it and she writes a really cool romance. Her second book, which I have not finished, unfortunately, is about a porn star turned sex educator and a rabbi. Thank you very much. Is this a heterosexual romance? This one's a heterosexual romance, but the, the, woman, the woman is bisexual. Oh, this sounds cool. I'm going to look up. Rosie Danan, if that's how you pronounce her name, but um, I'm going to look up Rosie Danan. Yeah. One of the things that romance 
has gotten better with, at least in the West, is breaking out of its racial strictures. Oh. So, you know, this isn't, this is by no means a complete affair, but romance has always had a large non-white readership. And I believe that uh, readers and writers are feeling more represented of late because there are characters who aren't kind of lily white no, uh, uh, anymore. I mean, from authors like Selena Montgomery mm. or Stacey Abrams, but also like... I don't know much about American politics, but I would love to see that woman as the president of the United States. Hell yes. And may she write more romances as well. Big boost to publishing is my major, <laughs> is my major concern. Exactly. Yeah. But there's this other author called Talia Hibbert, who writes romances in which the heroines are all women of color. Mm -hmm. They also almost invariably have, like one of them is autistic. One of them has chronic pain issues. Mm -hmm. They're really cleverly dismantling the old stereotype of the woman having to be perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, she doesn't look perfect in the conventional way. And the point that you were making about sort of the romance genre mixing it up and not being all about white people, which was how the older romances were. From the late 90s onwards, when you look at even something like the Mills and Boons. So Mills and Boons had, I'm sure they still do. I just haven't seen one in a long time because I've been in the house for a long time. And a Mills and Boon has not entered the house. No, tragically not. Mills and Boons were stuff that you picked up in airports. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you were browsing through bookshops that had absolutely nothing good from the literary fiction, but did have all the Mills and Boon romances. In circulating libraries. Those two. God bless those. Anyway, point is, Mills and Boon had a series, uh, there would be six modern romances that would come out every month, mm. right? And the modern romances were usually blue and they were the ones that had more than one sex scene, mm. might even have a blowjob. Sexy. And then later, the guy went down on her. It was insane. Mm. I don't think our mothers ever got to read a Mills and My Mom. mother was so excited. In which cunnilingus. My mother was so excited when the first cunnilingus showed up in a book. She was partly scandalized, but she was like, about time. It was um, a moment, I bet. I'm sure. But the thing is that what I meant, why I brought up the modern romances of Mills and Boons is that these were supposed to be relevant to our immediate social setting. Mm. This is also where women of color started showing up as heroines. It was also where men of color showed up as heroes. Let's not forget the sheikhs who were not all half white. Mm. Uh, there was this shift that went from the princes of impossibly small countries in Europe to sheikhs who were Arab men. Then there were Indian half Indians. There were a few half Indians out there. There were no Asians, which is very interesting. And I realized in later years why that was, because Far East Asia just has its own publishing culture, especially in the romance genre. Mm. So there was no way that Mills and Boone was going to be able to break into that market. So they didn't even try. Mm. The communities that they were trying to break into they had people from uh, those communities uh, featuring. I mean, there's also something to be said for this period of transition where if you were a majority white industry, then white writers would end up writing about communities that it was acceptable to fetishize. Something that in a very complicated way, Asian men were rarely subjected to because, you know, the West often desexualized men of East Asian origin. 
and sexualized problematically men of uh, whose origins lay elsewhere. But as more writers from ethnicities other than, you know, Caucasian start to write uh, romances and start to succeed in mainstream romance, the dynamics change. In fact, the last romance novel that I did read in full, the Panjana, was, you know, some years ago, but it was by a writer who is now, I think, pretty celebrated both within ro- hmm. romance writing circles and outside called Alyssa Cole. This was her first novel called A Princess in Theory. Mm. And I have a vague sense that it came out around the time that Black Panther did or maybe immediately after. So it was difficult not to draw the parallel whether or not she intended it to be where a struggling, really smart, uh, down-on-her-luck scientist who is African-American who happens to have a whirlwind romance, enemies to lovers, hashtag, (laughs) with a guy who is a prince of a fictional African nation. Uh, um, but not in, but not in like a weird. I don't know anything about you know. Afri- I don't know anything about Africa. Africa is a country way. The romance novel involved this American girl going back to a this, specific country. Yeah, this guy's country, and you know, engaging with the people there and sort of embracing their culture and having them embrace her. Mm. All of which was really lovely and kind of contributed generally to this not just being a very nice, sexy romance, but also a very fulfilling fantasy. And a novel. I think there's been a huge development in that sense. And what's lovely is that the success of the romance genre proves that the reading public is not backward and narrow minded. That, you know, if you will write it, they will read it. There's a lot to be said. If you make it sexy, they'll read it. That also. (laughs) So progress happens, including in the romance industry. And for everyone who doesn't read, write, or engage with romance novels, perhaps it's worth considering that this progress happens faster in the romance industry than it does elsewhere in publishing. Uh, And if you've never read a romance novel before, this might be the right time to pick one up. Because there is never a bad time for a happily ever after. Yeah. It is always a good time to read that they lived happily ever after. I hope we can say the same for ourselves. On that (laughs) note, in the middle of the second wave, (laughs) Deepanjana and I are signing off this episode of The Lit Pickers. See you next week. The Lit Pickers is a Made in India production. Don't forget to rate and review and follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, tell everyone you know about the show. Share it on social media, tell your friends and family, scream about it on your rooftop. It really helps get the word out. Oh, and use the hashtag LitPickers. Follow Supran the Panjana on Twitter or Instagram. You can also find all of the books they've mentioned or recommended in an online resource via a link in our episode description. Thanks, and keep listening. <laughs>